Well, um, we're looking at, at uh, a number of psalms in the second book of the psalms. Uh, they start at number 42, and we looked at 42, 43 together last week. And we saw the importance of speaking to ourselves and reminding ourselves to put our trust and our hope in God, who is our Saviour. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at the issue of innocent suffering. And I think it's an important thing for us to think about because many people, sadly, Christians often, but certainly the majority I've met of people who aren't Christian, believe that you relate to God in a transactional way. The most basic form of this is if you're good enough, God will accept you. If you're bad, then God will judge you. And so people weigh up their good deeds with their bad deeds and they try and make sure that they're at least on the positive side of the ledger. Yeah, I think I'm a basically good person. I've never done anything that's terribly bad, so God ought to treat me with respect and uh, invite me into his heaven and I should be accepted a Christian because, after all, we're all pretty good deep down. This is a Christian country. Surely we'll all be okay when it comes to God. That's a transactional view of God. And uh, this transactional view of God can also creep into Christian ways of thinking. Um, One particular example of this is what comes to be called often the prosperity gospel. And you see examples of it where if positive things are happening, i.e. God is blessing you, um, but if, if negative things are happening, then God is judging you. And that gets brought even into pastoral conversations so that if something is happening that's pretty hard in somebody's experience, then the minister or the Christians around them might be looking to ask them specifically, what have you done that's wrong? You're clearly being judged by God for your your poor behaviour because God rewards those who are good. Or maybe if you are doing well and uh, you've been following the stock market and you've made a boom and uh, property prices have gone your way and you've got the best job, the best family, the best opportunities all around, then you might think that God's blessing you because of the good things that you've done. And of course, this can cause great pain for people. I remember when I was uh, admitted to hospital with cancer, one of the first things that was said to me was, have you done anything of which you need to repent? Now, it's a good question to ask, but it's a devastating question to ask. Because as I started to think about it, I couldn't stop thinking of things that I'd done that I needed to repent of and wondered whether I had repented or hadn't repented. And there are many who would say that this is being brought upon you by God's judgment. Well... This is a psalm that talks about innocent suffering. And it is important, of course, that we repent when we've turned our backs upon God, when we've done evil. And sometimes evil does come about as a result of our sinful behaviour. Sometimes in this life we suffer the consequences. We come under God's judgment for things that we've done. But it's very difficult to work out exactly what transaction is happening. I'll give you an example of this uh, from Jesus. Jesus uh, gets asked about some current events. And um, in Luke chapter 13, uh, we'll pick it up, the first few verses. There were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans 
whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. In other words, there was the wholesale slaughter of people there at the temple. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So Jesus is saying you can't simply identify a transaction. It's not that they lived badly and God brought a direct judgment upon them through Pilate or through the tower falling on them. But when you see judgment happening, it's a good warning to turn back to God. Well, this psalm is a psalm that I think is very timely. And uh, I encourage you to follow it through with me. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at it in three sections. And uh, if you want to know where we're going, the bold points on your outline will tell you this is an Old Testament psalm but it has a New Testament fulfilment and contemporary application. And we're going to look at it in that way. First of all, I just want to take you fairly briefly through the structure and shape and message of the psalm. So verses 1 to 8 kind of go together, and I'm going to recap them. So we have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them the victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. And it's a great message here. It's, it's pointing back in the history of God's people to the time when he brings them into the promised land. And the word of God makes it very, very clear that God is giving them the land as a gift. In fact, in a little summary statement, right at the end of the book of Joshua, it's made very clear that it was not through their bows or through their swords that they took captivity of the land. It is God's work. God is the giver. God is the one who created the victories over all the ites, the Canaanites and the Malachites and all those other ites that were there. This is God's work, not their work. And as you look at this, it's a wonderful reminder that everything that they have is from God. In fact, one of the refrains that you, you read in this psalm is the word you, and it's directed to God. You, 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 your, your, your. Um, and, and typically in this psalm, this psalm is addressed from the audience, the congregation, to God. But there are some exceptions And I want to highlight those and point them out because I think they can be a key to understanding what to do with this. In verse 4, the next verse, You are my king, someone says, and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. And then it goes back again to the plural, though through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. Then it goes to the singular again. I put no trust in my bow, my sword does not bring me victory. And then again, back into the plural, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long and we praise your name forever. Now, 
it's worth noticing that there is this voice, this singular voice. And I had wondered, and I didn't do anything about this, as to whether when this was read, we could have got a small group of people, like a choir, reading all of the plural sections, and then one person steps forward and they read those singular voice verses. Because it seems that there's a leader of the people that's in view. It seems that there's somebody representing the people here. And that the focus of what's going on is understood and is felt by this one person, this individual. But the first of these uh, stanzas, these first eight verses, are a wonderful picture of people not trusting in themselves for victory, but trusting in the God who gives victory. And in many ways, it would have been brilliant if this had finished at Psalm Uh, 44 verse 8 just a nice little psalm and if it had stopped at verse 8 you'd call it a psalm of praise but that's the next word (laughs) but now verse 9 and what we'll see we'll move it from a psalm of praise to a psalm of lament there are tough times but now you have rejected and humbled us you no longer go out with our armies You've made us retreat before the enemy and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. See, there's, it's like there's a key change here. From a major key to a minor key. Things have now become, well, terrible. There is suffering. God is no longer with them. In contrast to God's salvation, they are now experiencing defeat. There are dreadful words that are being used here. They are suffering from their enemies, their adversaries. But ultimately, again, notice that God is the one being addressed. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob, yes... But now in verse 9, you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep. You scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance and gained nothing from their sale. It's like, God, why have you discarded us? You didn't even bother to put us on Facebook Marketplace. You just stuck us out on the curb. You got nothing in return. We're, we're unwanted. Why do you do that, God? Here is the cry of suffering, the cry of neglect, 